What is the key to passion? Why do we feel that magnetic pull, that overwhelming draw to another person? I have one word for you, polarity. As Tony says, things in common make a relationship work, but it's the differences that spark the passion. And those differences are all about our core energies. See, we all have both masculine and feminine energy, and your leading energy reflects your inner nature and values. It's not based on gender. Women can have masculine cores and men can have feminine cores. But the more opposed the sexual energies are between two people in a relationship, the stronger that attraction will be. So many of us, though, lose that passion over time when feminine energy is put on a masculine mask or when masculine energies wear a feminine mask. That's why if you want to ignite that spark again in your relationship, it's absolutely key for both you and your partner to cultivate your core energy. Or if you're single and you want to attract someone of the opposite energy, you must learn how to embrace your feminine or masculine core. To learn more about the keys to polarity and to discover if you're masculine or feminine in your own core, take our five minute quiz. Go to tonyrobbins.com polarity. That's P-O-L-A-R-I-C-Y. And take that test today. Hey guys, welcome to Tony Robbins Podcast. For some of you who've been following along, it's a welcome back, and we're glad you tuned back in and downloaded this episode. And for those of you just coming across, maybe for the first time, a very warm welcome, and we hope you enjoy this first experience. I'm here with Mary B., my co-host, and we have a very special guest today. In fact, this experience today is going to be very different. If you've been following the podcast, you know that we've been dealing with peak performers in business and in life and you may be thinking we're going to interview somebody like Siri Lindley again, who's, you know, the world's greatest uh, triathlete who literally didn't know how to swim when she started. Or, you know, talking leadership with four-star general McChrystal about what does it take to really lead people in the most difficult situations. Or, you know, top CEOs like Joe Gebbie, who co-founded Airbnb and took it from nothing to multi-billion dollar organization. All of the strategies and tactics that we try to pull out of our guests here are designed to help you not expand your business, but also expand your life. And one of the things that I've found is that people spend so much time in their business today that their business is part of their identity, a major part of it if they own a business. You know, oftentimes people spend more time in their business than they do with their children. They spend more time in their business than with their love of their life. And so we've tried to help people in that area, but today I want to expand the wheel of life and really talk about a subject that I think is the most important of all, and that is relationship. I really believe if you're not happy in your intimate relationship, you're not going to stay happy. Nobody on their deathbed, as we all know, says, gosh, I wish I spent more time at the office. But the feelings that we have about the love in our relationships, or lack thereof, really affects us. And so there is an extraordinary guest we have today. She's been a dear friend. And actually, we've taught together for about, what has it been, Esther, 14 years? 14 years, exactly. 14 years. That's amazing. All over the world, we've done interventions together. And of course, what I'm talking about is Esther Perel, who is just, I think, a genius in this area of understanding deep relationship, understanding the dynamics between men and women, understanding the sexual dynamic and the desire dynamic and eroticism. She's written several extraordinary books one is called Meeting in Captivity, and she now has a new book, and we're going to dive into the subject today because I love going places nobody goes. I love going <laughs> to the places that are taboo because the places people don't want to talk about is where often you can have the greatest breakthroughs. So Esther, I just want to, and your new book is called, uh, what is it, the, the title of affairs? What is it? The State, the of, state affairs? of Affairs. The, the state, state of Affairs. So let's start with relationship first before we dig into affairs. <laughs> and tell me something, why is it today What's different historically about relationships today? They seem to be more complex. There seems to be more drama and conflict. Is that really true? Have things really changed in a world where people can swipe right and it's no longer about relationships? Sex is a commodity. How has the world changed and how does that affect that we deal with relationship today from what you've studied and learned with? And how many people you dealt with? I, I don't want to misquote, but I know you've been in this business your entire life. And how many couples have you dealt with over time? Probably thousands. <sighs> Yes, you know, um, sure. it's been 34 years uh, in my practice, but also internationally, certainly with you, you know, at, um, at the Platinum Retreats. I think we've done it about six or seven times together. Yes. Um, but, I, you know, I start with a line that I think you and I have said differently, but, but very, very closely, which is that um, the quality of our lives is determined by the quality of our relationships. 
No question. Or in reverse, that it's the quality of our relationships that ultimately will determine the quality of our lives. It doesn't matter how much you perform and how successful you are. Uh, this is where the legacy really stands. And why is it more difficult today? Look, I was thinking this week, friendship hasn't really changed that much. Sibling relationships haven't really changed that much. Your relationship with your dentist hasn't really changed that much. If there is a relationship, <laughs> yes, exactly. If there is a relationship that has really transformed in a very short amount of time, it's the couple. And then, therefore, also the family. The, but the couple has undergone extreme makeover, you know, from the fact that um, not too long ago, marriage was an economic enterprise, um, that it is today a romantic enterprise, that um, people were particularly are engaged around duty and obligation and not around romance and around self-expression or self-fulfillment, that sexuality was a primarily a woman's marital duty and that people experience sexuality primarily for procreation to a sexuality that is now rooted in desire and in connection and, um, and, in a, and it therefore is a matter of free will um, to the fact that um, we are asking one person to give us what once an entire village used to provide because I want my partner to still give me what traditional marriage gave me or committed relationships, straight or gay relationships relationships. You know, I want commitment, I want um, economic support, companionship, social respectability, children, but I also want you to be my best friend, my trusted confidant, my passionate lover, my intellectual equal, my best parent, the one who inspires me at work. And we have never asked one person to fulfill so many needs and often contradictory needs. <laughs> Oh my gosh, no wonder people chose draft, right? I mean, do you know another enterprise that has only two people that has such a tall, par tall order for a party of two? You know, Certainly not a business, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, so this is... The, those major changes, of this is before even technology has entered the bedroom, but there is not a single other... Uh, enterprise that begins with such an intense dream and can unravel into such a dismal abyss. Um, and then the fact that everybody who comes to you knows that when they want to build a business, they need to learn a number of things. They need to learn best practices. They need to read about it. They need to talk with others. But when it comes to couples, we actually know very little what goes on in the life of a couple. Couples are often quite alone. They don't know if what they experience is normal, is shared, is common. It's actually a rather shrouded environment with people who feel like they have to prove that they're doing this well and that they're perfect, but without being able to go and say, I don't know if I'm doing this right, I need help. Whereas in business, they can do it. And in their romantic lives, they don't. So they've never really studied it. There's no school for relationship. There certainly is no school for sexuality. And and yet people have this idea that they're going to do this once in their 20s and it's going to last for 50 years with unabiding love and intense passion and, and, and solid commitment. And it's not happening. You know, if Apple called you a product that failed 50% of the time, would you buy it? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but this is what's happening to marriage. Yes. Yes. So tell us, how is social media now affecting that? How is technology affecting it as well today? Well, so in, for people who are not together, it's definitely the, the prime way that people meet uh, is through... I think it's three things. We meet primarily online, uh, uh, more at this point, I think, even than face-to-face. What social media has given us, and particularly what the, the swiping culture has given us, is a massive amount of choice. You no longer just choose between John and, and Philip in the village. You have thousands of people to choose from, and you feel a level of freedom that you never had, but you also have a tyranny of uncertainty and self-doubt that you've never had. How do you know this is the one when you can have 998 others who could be just as good if not better. And so this FOMO thing in which we are continuously wondering, is this the one? And what does it mean, the one today? It is the one that's going to make you want to delete your apps. So there is that whole piece in terms of the... <laughs> 
meeting, <laughs> just the, the way we, we, we meet somebody. And then when people do live together, I think what we, everywhere you look, the same thing are being described. Once technology entered the bedroom, you know, it began with the phone. That at first it was the TV, then it was the phone. Now it's a multiple set of devices. Um, there is a lack of face-to-face. -face. You know, people are discussing in their relationships some of the most important issues of their lives through text, and then they are concerned that they are that they have misunderstandings. I mean, text is not made to discuss if you're going to marry or divorce or have another child or uh, talk through to your mother. It's crazy. I, I was uh, with somebody just recently, actually a gentleman was cutting my hair and there was a woman beside him and she was talking about how she left a message for a boyfriend saying that they want, wanted to see other people. It was the first initial communication <laughs> of this. And she couldn't understand why he was so upset. <laughs> this conversation in person. It's pretty wild. What do you think is the most, the biggest mistake that the couples make today in this new environment where they expect everything and they expect their partner to be everything uh, and then often find themselves disappointed by creating an impossible task that they couldn't even meet for their own part. Right, right. Look, you know, I think that one of the strange things in our Western culture at this point is that uh, romantic love has supplanted religion uh, as the area where men and women seek meaning, transcendence, wholeness, and ecstasy. And so when we talk about a soulmate, we seem to have mixed up the spiritual and the relational as if they're one and the same. And this kind of perfection that we long to experience in our earthly love, it used to be sought in the divine, not on earth. So this notion that you are going to make me uh, feel good about myself, that I am going to be happy when I wake up next to you, that I bring to my relationships a kind of consumer mentality, right? Where is my ROI, you know? where This is not the deal that I signed up for, you know? I'm not, I, I'm not getting my needs met. It, it, it becomes a kind of a... We, we talk more and more about love as a kind of a permanent state of enthusiasm rather than a verb. And, and it's a verb, it's, a, it's an action that you practice throughout your life. You fail, you do mistakes, you betray, you lie, you do all kinds of things, and then you stand up again and you, and you continue. And that sense of resilience is, is not necessarily as much there. And I think the big issue for me when I think of couples today is really, you know, I've often used that metaphor because it's so clear to me. It's like, there's one thing to see couples that are not dead. And there's another thing to see couples that are alive. Yes. And that right. sense of aliveness, of vitality that we yearn for, is, is not so, it's something that people need to cultivate, you know? I asked almost 100 people, do you know a couple that inspires you, that you think has a spark? Now, look at what you did. You just told me about the general, and you told me about the triathlete, and you told me about the business person. Everybody in those areas can instantly name someone that inspires them, that they would like to look to, that they would like to learn from. If you ask people if they know couples that inspire them, the vast majority can't come up with anyone, maybe one. That's, that's, that's the is, sad state of affairs, is, if you want to talk state of affairs. That's probably the you most know, sad Yes, part. yes. It's like, what? I mean, you, you know so many musicians, so many business people, but when I ask you about the most difficult and the most important thing that you're doing in your life, you're telling me that you have no models? Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And, you know, people are operating like their relationship is a business. Like you said, they're, they go in and they're trying to figure out what they can get. And anybody who does that in business fails in business, too. The only way you succeed That's in business true. is you become obsessed with falling in love with your customer, with your client. And you don't want to make them a satisfied customer. You want to make them a raving fan. And nothing could be more true in an intimate relationship. But to do that... You've got to constantly be looking at what am I here to give? How can I light them up? That's what people do in the beginning of a relationship. And then some, at some point, seven days, seven months, seven years, 70 years later, they walk in and they're constantly focusing on what am I getting or not, as opposed to what can I give that will light my partner up? And that's what lights me up. What makes that change in people? What shifts us from wanting to be the giver and pour our love into someone to sitting around expecting or evaluating what we're not getting? So it's two part, and I think it goes very closely to what you do as well. You know, the first thing is I meet you, and when when the people tell you, you know, at meeting the right person, they're constantly wanting to meet the right person, and I'm also often asking them, and who is the person you want to be? 
Yes, you know, too. this notion that you're going to find who the one that's going to fill you up, the one that's going to quieten all your inner rumblings, the one that's going to, you know, lift you and so forth, rather than what is it that you're going to do. And so in the reverse, it's true when you work with couples and certainly in therapy or any coaching is that you basically tell them the day you come in here, because, you know, people come to couples therapy generally to tell you what they know is wrong with their partner and then to say, fix it. <laughs> <laughs> Put you in a unique have, position. <laughs> you know, I have never heard a person come to couples therapy and say, I came to look at what I do, you know, how I make messes. They come to tell you that they have an expertise on describing you the messes of the other, and they'll say, I'll assist you in fixing my partner. And like you, I say, things will begin to change when you start to look at yourself, what you do, what you take responsibility for, because the minute you start to take responsibility, you will experience power and freedom. And so to turn that around is unbelievably difficult. This notion that you are responsible for my happiness, I am miserable because of you, and then I need you to change, since you don't change, I become more angry and more resentful. And then the more resentful I become, the less you're changing. And then the less you're changing and the more resentful I become. And we are in this loop together rather than me basically saying, what can I do here to make things better and to do it non-contingent? I'm going to do it because I think it's the right thing to do for what I want rather than say, I'm going to sit here passively stew and wait for you to be the one to change, to, to, you know, to do this first step. And that piece of work, which I watch you do all the time, I just told you I watched your movie again, and um, it's just like you really, you, it's not just that you empower, you actually tell people f there is power in responsibility. There's no question. I mean, until you're responsible, you have no power because responsibility is the ability to respond. As long as I'm a victim, That's I have right. no control to change things. And I, I think the biggest challenge is our culture, you know, and social media has created this mindset of perfection that, you know, I'm going to make myself look perfect. I expect my partner to be perfect. It's all about what am I going to get instead of what I'm going to give. And I, if you ask me, I think that's the single biggest mistake. But I also think people are not fulfilled very often because there's conditioning that comes from the culture, conditioning that comes from your family. One of the things you said the very first time we ever taught together, I was really, I wrote it down and I've applied it so many times, is the understanding of attachment theory. But the way you delivered it is so much more clear. I think the language you used initially was, tell me how you were loved as a child and I'll tell you how you love today. Would you help us to understand what are the different relationship types that come from the way, you know, from our conditioning and also, how does our family roles play? Because, you know, there are people that are raised in a, in a culture, you know, Sage was raised in a culture where mom is very clear about this subject. Uh, some people, you know, Mary B, what was your family like? Not like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Esther, it's truly, you know, the first few times I've heard you teach, and this goes hand in hand with what Tony teaches. You mentioned in the documentary, people see that notion that kind of everything hinges on for tone, which is the truth will set you free and you've got to get dirt honest with yourself. I feel that in this topic, in relationships, I'll speak for myself, I did absolutely grew up, grow up in one of those families that is about silence and secrecy and guilt and shame. And there's, there was just no conversation about anything, about boyfriends, about girlfriends, heavens, no. <laughs> so to have, and then to have this principle of, okay, model the best, who do you go to? Esther, you're exactly right. There's nothing there. So that conditioning, can you just speak more to that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That there is no school and how do families shape us because we're so different. So it's interesting. And how do we break out of that conditioning as long as we're going to stack 20 questions on you at once? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think in my head, I'm going to answer this part first. And which... <laughs> Don't feel too overwhelmed. <laughs> Give us a solution now, damn it. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's actually very interesting because I, I was doing a workshop at TED this year and I got... Uh, everybody up and I basically said to them um, in a kind of a sociogram which you've seen me do uh, when we work with the, yes. the people too I said um, if relationships were central in your family life growing up go to the left and if they were peripheral go to the right of course I don't know what people mean when they say that and so I said look now I'm going to ask you a series of questions were you raised for autonomy or were you raised for loyalty Mm, Where you told 
you should count on yourself. You should rely on you. If you have an issue, you know, what is it that you can do? Or were you raised on uh, who can help you? Who can you ask? Were you told, you know, the moment you could speak, state your needs, say what it is you want, use your words? Or were you told you are here to actually intuit what other people want from you? And that is a very different um, system that, you know, were you raised in, in terms of being loyal and, and having legacy towards the people? As in, you know, or were you raised to kind of do what's right for you? You know, in the States, people often say, you should do what's right for you. You should do what you want. You should do what makes you happy. In most of the world, that statement never exists without the consequences of how it will affect those that you love. You're part of a larger embedded community. And so you don't do what you want. You do what you can, provided how it will affect the others. And we went on and on like this. And I said, where did you learn to love and how? And tell me, when you grew up, did you feel that people were protecting you or did you feel that you had to flee for protection? And was it a, were you allowed to thrive in your family? Were you allowed to cry out loud? Were you allowed to laugh out loud? Many times you can laugh out loud, but God forbid you cry, cry out loud, right? And were, you, were people attentive to your needs or did you have to go and take care of them because you were the parentified child? And... Um, were you touched? Were you rocked? Were you sued? Or were you beaten? Were you invaded? Were you violated? What was the relationship to the boundaries in your family? Um, and were you, as a child, only allowed to be seen and not to be heard? Or what was the place of the child in the family? And sexuality in your family, what was that like? Yeah. So, of course, often people say it was totally not central. It was not central until you start to say, tell me something. If there was violation or if there was invasion of boundaries do you or if there was silence or secrecy, do you think that makes it not present or do you think it makes it actually hugely present but like an elephant in the room? And, and if there was infidelity, do you think that makes it not present or do you think it actually makes it hugely central as well? And in the end, of course, there's only five people who can tell you that sexuality wasn't central in their family life growing up. <laughs> when you have that definition, you're right. <laughs> you understand? It's like they think it has to do with seeing my parents being affectionate or talking to us. No, 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 no. And so now they, I gave, they had a whole vocabulary for thinking about, you know, gender, because that's a piece of the expectations all the time, relationships, sexuality, and, and basically the fundamental question I then say is when you came out of your histories, when you came out of your childhoods, did you feel like you were more in need for protection, for stability, for connection, for, for, for um, yeah, protection is probably the best way. Or did you feel that you came out more in, with the need for space and for freedom and for exploration and for adventure? Because we both have those needs. We all need security and adventure. We all need to be able to explore and we need to be able to experience stability and safety. But all of us come out of our histories needing more one than the other. And we tend to partner with somebody who actually is on the other side. So I tend to say, not just tell me how you were loved and I tell you how you love, but I also say, tell me how you were loved and I'll tell you how you make love because your emotional history is is inside your body it's inside the physicality of your sexuality it's experienced not just in your heart and in your mind it's experienced in your skin how you experience touch how you can receive and so now the way i began to work with this is i came up with seven verbs you know just as a as a way to to concretize this as a person who speaks nine languages, I've often learned a new language by looking at what are the key verbs I need to know first in order to be able to just start mm -hmm. to speak, to be, to go, to have, to ask, you know. And so I applied it to relationships, to ask, to take, to receive, to share, um, to refuse, to imagine, and to give. That's beautiful. And Ask yourself, in your relationship life, how comfortable are you with asking? Can you ask? Or do you feel like, you know, you should never ask because it makes you too dependent? Or you should never ask because it makes you too subjugated? Or people won't care about what you ask because you feel invisible? 
Every one of these verbs is like a portal into your entire relationship profile. How do you feel about giving? Do you enjoy giving? Do you experience an exuberance in your generosity? Or do you feel that you give in order to acquit yourself of your debt? You give so that you want, so that you will feel free to ask, or you give so that you won't be dependent on others and you'll be always be the one to pay so that nobody else, you know, so that you never have to rely on anyone and nobody can disappoint you. How is it about receiving? Can you receive? When somebody gives you a compliment, can you simply say, thank you, that feels really nice, you made my day, or do you start to qualify it? You know, can you receive? How vulnerable do you feel when you receive? And you can apply it sexually, you can apply it uh, simply interpersonally. How is it for you to share? Are you, can you, do you enjoy relying on others and sharing? Do you, or do you find that massively threatening, scary? Uh, you know, who's going to be there for you? You can only rely on yourself and you certainly need to compete all the time. And for each one of these verbs, I can come up with 20 questions that basically, if when you then sit down and you start to write your relationship to each of these verbs, to each of these relationship stances, you get pretty much a good portrait of yourself. And then the next question is, which verb are we going to practice now? Mm. Which is the one that is most in need of massaging oh, and that. building muscle? And, and if you have not... Sharing, so you, you pick those and make it a focus for them. I love yep. that. That's so and simple. And now we have... And who do you need to ask from? Who is the one person that you really should be going to ask from before we end this training? You know, and who is the person that you should that you owe something to that you really need to go and give without asking for anything in return? And who's the person who's been wanting to give to you, who you've been closing off to, who you've been shutting down to, who you've just given the runaround to, you know, and on and on like this. So it goes from the map to the identifying of what is the, the, the core resource and strength that you need to muscle, to then going and actually carrying it out and doing it. Well, you know, you, you've also given a great example in the past of you talking about being a child and as you start to leave your mother or father and, you know, to go play outside, the, the different reactions you could have, whether you felt like you had to come back immediately, whether you were safe to go. What I'm really digging for is, you know, when you look at people's attachments, they play such a role in how they interact in relationships. And the more we can understand ourselves and our partner, the more we can have compassion, appreciation, and love for them as opposed to judgment. And some people grow up with a very secure set of attachments. You know, I know Sage grew up in an environment where, you know, she could she was loved no matter what. Some people grow up in mm -hmm. more insecure attachments. I certainly grew up in that environment where, right, you know, right. you do something or not do anything, you can have your head smashed against the wall. Um, so it's a very from the very person you love. So it's very different. And some people in between, can you explain so those people could kind of take yeah, a look yeah, at themselves yeah. and, and how that plays and how they interact in relationships, whether they're secure in their original attachments or unsecure in between, and, and also how they could be able to understand and appreciate their partner more and help their partner more. Because people tend to, I, in my experience, find somebody of almost a, an opposite attachment. Not exactly. always. I mean, it's a lot easier if you have this, two people in a secure attachment. Let's not forget the avoidance. Yes, thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> I left out the I was... that I didn't, <laughs> that I is foreign to me. Yes, yes, so let's talk about those three so the people who's listening know what the hell we're talking about here. Thank you, Mary so... I left that one out. <laughs> And I, met, someone I, understands. And, I remember, and I remember meeting Sage parents. So, yes. um, you know, I'm going to give you a, a tiny bit in terms of the attachment maps, and then I'm going to give you the maps that I use just because um, they're, they're the ones that I work with personally. So when we talk about attachments, we tend to define them in, in, in three or four major categories. There is a secure attachment, there is an ambivalent attachment, there is an insecure attachment, and there is an anxious attachment. But what they all talk about um, is really what is the, the relationship very early on in terms of your, your ability to be able to rely on someone who pays attention to your needs, to your distress, to your joy, to your expressions, and is able to respond to it appropriately without neglect, without overemphasis on themselves, 
without pretending that it is for you, but it's actually for them. Do you know, the, the, the secure attachment is one in which you have a kind of a fluid relationship between I feel solid, I can rely on you, I, I can lean on you, and I can leave you, and you won't fall apart either. And I feel very good in, ex, in experiencing the anchor and the exploration, the secure base and the discoveries that I do away from you. But when we don't have that, some of us develop a very insecure sense of attachment that can be very anxious. I'm constantly checking. I'm constantly coming after you. I become the pursuer in the relationship, the one who always wants more or who wants to be reassured or who needs to be affirmed. And then you have the withholder, and the withholder is often described as the person who will avoid conflict or who will avoid closeness, who is afraid of, of being invaded, but also who has learned to not come too close so that they won't be disappointed. You see, I think that what is very important to know is that our attachment style of today is often a defense that was adaptive in the moment that we were experiencing it. If you were beaten and if you experienced violence like I know you did and you learned to shut down and to guard yourself and to avoid it was adaptive it wasn't a problem what becomes a problem is if you do this later on with someone who actually cares for you and loves you and is tender and you still are responding from the place where you learned this thing without realizing that you're no longer at home with your mother and it's that that is very important to see is that often the, the things that we have developed our defense mechanisms our survival strategies which is a better term are, are often were necessary at the time but we need to undo them now so i began to talk about it when i looked at why uh, understanding desire actually i was less studying attachment as I was studying desire. But desire, of course, is very connected to attachment. And I came up with that image from looking at children of the kid that sits on your lap. And that kid, at some point, if all goes well in, in development, needs to get off the lap of the parent because they want to crawl and then run and then walk, etc., to explore, to discover, to play, to be in their own imaginary world. And then they turn back always to look to see if the adult, mommy, daddy, whoever the caregiver is, is still there looking at them. And if the parent or the adult says, kiddo, the world is a great place, go play, go discover, I'm here, when you're done, come back. We learn to experience security and adventure at the same time, connection and freedom, separateness and togetherness, whichever way names we give to this, what we are, you know, Ulysses used to talk about home and travel. Every epic story knows this duality. Yes. But if the kid comes, turns around and there is an adult that says, I'm lonely, I'm depressed, uh, my partner hasn't paid any attention to me, what's so good out there? Don't we have everything we need together, you and I? Then you have one, three main responses. And one of the big responses is, and everyone who's done that knows that, is that in order not to lose you, I will lose a part of me. Because the message says come back without ever having to say this in words. And some of us will come back and we will forego our need for freedom and for exploration and adventure and all of that in order to secure the base. And I will learn to love in a certain way when I do that. Because I will learn that love comes with extra burden, extra weight, extra responsibility, extra anxiety. Love always worries and takes responsibility for the well-being of the other. But some of us have a way of loving that makes us feel that the other person needs us with such an intensity that we can no longer hold on to ourselves when we are there taking care of the other. We lose ourselves when we attend to the other. And that's when I began to say, in relationships, you will often find one person who is more afraid to lose themselves and one person who is more afraid to lose the other. Hmm. One person more afraid with the fear of abandonment and one person more afraid with the fear of being swallowed up. The second child, by the way, doesn't come back right away because they're zesty, they have energy, they want to stay playing. But the closer they become, the more the intimacy rises, the more the emotional connection thickens, 
the more they disconnect from their desire. Desire is not just, it's not in the sexual sense. The desire is the free will. It's the ability to, to play, to, to attend to oneself, to experience aliveness and vitality, which is the opposite of responsibility and worry and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Well, mine certainly was taking care of my mother. That was the piece. What was it for you, Mayor? I think I was more getting called back lovingly from mom and dad but it made me just be like i gotta get out of here yeah and how's that affected your relationships for example um probably in ways that i still don't even know but i have to say you know Esther, i've been listening to if you've not heard it yet your podcast on audible on amazon where should we begin and going through with couples uh and it's just brilliant to be able to witness when i'm not involved and attached and hooked to hear human beings uh innocently, you know, you you do such a beautiful job of saying where you see a couple, where you meet them right now, at first glance, there is a lot going on under the surface. And just Mm -hmm. asking those questions that take you back to one of the most powerful ones for me that you always ask Esther is, where did you learn that? And that has been so powerful to me to to go back. And oftentimes it's like, gosh, I guess I learned that when I was like five. (laughs) And now (laughs) I to 35. (laughs) So I've added two questions from there that actually uh, I, I attribute to my colleague Terry Real, which is not just where did you learn that, who did this to you, or who did you see do this? Mm-hmm. When I'm dealing with people who are grandiose, who are contemptuous, who put the other one down, who are dismissive, who really don't respond to the needs of another, who who have no empathy, who are constantly, you know, you tell something and they come back and they up you because their issue is always bigger and more important. Their complaint precedes yours. The whole bit, it's, you know, or suddenly if they are violent in whatever violent way that they are, it's who did you do, who did this to you? Who put you down like this? Who shrunk you like that? And who did you see do this? That's then it's even more concrete than where did you learn it? Because instantly they, they start to remember, you know, it's like the, the, they remember that hand that presses their head down and just basically said, you are worthless. And then they can make other people feel worthless. And by the way, while they're doing this at home, they can be utterly charming to their customers. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. Right? So I always say to them, you know, if you treated your partner like you treat your clients, your marriage would be doing quite well. You know, but you're charming here and you bring the leftovers there. You know, you treat your partner, you know, subpar. And it is not okay and to, 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 to feel like you can just parade like this. And generally, nobody's born like that. Nobody was born on the parade. So where did you see this? You know, tell me the movie. And now I began to, in very, in very detail, you know, way, um, what was the, what, what were the words that were being used? You know, what was the words that, if somebody wanted to just stick it to you, what was the one thing they had to say? You know? Interesting. Well, Tell me something, you know, one of the first things that happened when we started working together is you brought up this amazing dynamic and you talked about it in Mating in Captivity, which is such a great title. Um, when you talked about the, the distinction of caretaking and what that does to destroy, you know, sexual desire and drive, can you talk a little bit about why does that, yes. why does the more, sometimes the more people love each other, the less passion they have. It's a, it's a bizarre dynamic and we've seen it over and over right. again. Can you address that? And it also just address the difference between love and desire. So go back to the dynamic that I described, right? The kid looks back, the adult calls them back, and they basically say, I forgo a part of me. I disconnect from my playfulness. I disconnect from my desire. I disconnect from my exploratory side. And I turn in order to come and take care of you. These are often people who, the more they love somebody, the more they struggle to make love to that somebody. Because to make love to someone, you have to be able to feel that they are sturdy, that they can withstand the force of your desire, that they can receive you. If you experience them as fragile and you feel like you have to parent them, 
You can't have sex with them. If our head is straight on our shoulders, we never want sex in the family. The minute you have a relationship where one person feels like they're the parent to the other, the mother, the father, the brother, the sister, the roommate, there is no sex because we won't have sex in the family. There may be a lot of affection, there may be a lot of physical touch, tenderness, but it won't be erotic. In order for it to be erotic, you need to not feel that you are in a parental, familial relationship. It's just taboo, that's it. And this is one of the few universal taboos. The second part of this is that when you ask people, and that's probably the way that it's the most easy to, 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 to illustrate, and it's a question I took way back when, when I wrote Mating. You ask people, when do you find yourself most drawn to your partner? And they will systematically tell you one of four answers. But the first one is, I'm drawn to my partner, which is not the same as sexually attracted, when my partner is in their element, when they're doing something they're passionate about, when they're in the studio, on the horse, on the motorcycle, on the ski slope, on stage, uh, when they are radiant, which is a word I know you often use, because it means they're inside their own life, they're inside their passion, they're, they don't need me. They are self-sufficient. And when they don't need me, it means I don't have to take care of them. And if I don't have to take care of them, then it means I can desire them. It's simply like that. Every woman will tell you that she knows the difference when her partner, female or male partner, wants her or needs her. If the partner needs her, she can be sweet, she can take care, but she will never be turned on. If he wants her or she wants her, she will respond from the place of somebody that is confident, desires me. The biggest turn on is confidence worldwide. No matter how it looks, the word behind it is confidence. Mm. And if I have to take care of you, I can't let go. It's, you know, the, play, the game you play on the beach where you fall back and somebody holds you? Yeah. To have sex is to surrender. To surrender, you have to feel that you can fall on somebody and they will receive you and enjoy it. If you feel like you have, they are scared, you are, they are threatened, or you have to worry about them, you can't let go. Why do guys in straight couples always tell you, nothing turns me on more than to see her turned on? Because if she's turned on and she's liking it, he doesn't have to worry about being predatory. He knows she's into it. If she's into it and she's enjoying it, then we are in the realm of pleasure. We're not in the realm of violence. And why does the woman never say what turns me most is to see him turned on, but she says what turns me most, turn on the most is to be the turn on, is because if she's busy with her own erotic self, then she knows she's not in the role of caretaking. She's not responsible for anybody else's well-being, and for once she can actually focus on herself. And those two things, the predatory fear for the man and the, the burden of responsibility and caretaking for the woman, are the things that you need to let go of. Both of them, the opposite of which, are you take care of somebody. So. When I say love and desire, they relate and they also conflict. What I'm saying is that love wants to contract the distance. It wants to neutralize the tensions. It wants to know the beloved. It, wants, it needs absolute trust. Desire needs mystery. Desire needs an other. It needs that other person that I'm looking there, that is radiant, that is in their element, that I'm curious about, that I momentarily am once again not sure that I know them. Because who is that person sitting at the piano? They're completely wrapped. And you, you are drawn to that other person that is not an extension of you, that you don't feel responsible for, and now you can freely want them, desire them, be attracted to them, and reach out to them. So desire needs, you know, I would always say that love works very hard to close the gap that then desire needs to open up again. You need to have a bridge to cross and somebody to visit on the other side. Call me into your red light district. Invite me. You know, and I need to be, and, and that invitation, that motion is the desire, is I want to come and see who is this person, what's in there, you know, and that curiosity, curiosity is the essential ingredient of desire, and you can't be curious when you are not safe, you need the safety, you need to feel um, 
Yes, basically, you need to not be anxious in order to be curious. And so you, you can need feel to... responsible, too. I mean, it's a it... sense of responsibility exactly. that often kills the desire because it, it brings out a different part of you. It brings out the mother or the father. That's right. As a, you know, the brother or the sister or whatever. Someone's going to take care of someone as opposed right. to someone that you're going to literally enter another world with and, you know, enter a new part of yourself with. Is this why so many women, you know, most men are surprised in seminars and will ask women, What's their greatest fantasy? And like husbands will find out their wife will say being taken by a stranger. Of course, the and bad see, boy. And why? And why the bad boy? Because the bad boy you don't have to worry about taking care of. He's you got you don't it. worry about hurting his feelings, right? That's you, right. So the you can bad, surrender. Is that right? Yes, completely. The bad boy takes perfectly good care of himself. Thank you. Right. So you can be whatever you want to be, do whatever you want to <laughs> so do. You don't have to worry about exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. You don't. When the bad boy, you know, when the bad boy says, "How was it?" He wants to know how was it for you. When the other partner asks her how was it, what he wants to know is how was I. Right. And he's asking for reassurance. And if he's asking for reassurance, she will mother him. And if she mothers him, she will love him, but she won't necessarily desire him. Mm. Wow. You know, how do couples, what happens, how do couples that love each other so much, because I've seen this so many times, they have so much love for each other, but they're constantly looking out for each other, constantly caretaking. How do they break out of that? What, what would be an exercise or an assignment you give a couple to kind of break out of that and come back to where they can find curiosity and mystery and where they're not caretaking? Because it comes from a, such a positive intent. You see couples that have been together 20, 30 years, and most of them don't have that passion anymore. They've settled for something less. And then you find those exceptions. You know, Bonnie Pearl and I have a dear couple friend that just yesterday celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary and they're passionate for each other they grab each other love each other make love it's just it's just a beautiful thing at this stage of life in their 90s 80s and 90s what would be an assignment what would be a someone's listening right now going man i i love my partner so much but we don't have enough passion what's your what would be your you know assignment your approach to helping them to to reignite this again so there's, there's a few different things that I, I, I would do. And by the way, I think that when people say we don't have enough passion, that they tell it to you six months to two years into it. It's not necessarily 20 years. The yes. ones who have it, have it. And the ones who lose it often lose it very early or lose it right after the kids when they do become family. Um, so, you know, um, when, if they have little children, I say to them, uh, tell me something. Um, do you have, when you go out, a curfew? Do you always have to come home because the babysitter, because somebody, because the kids, because can you find a way, every, if it does, even if it's every three months, I don't care, can you find a way where you can go out without having to come home at a certain time? When's the last time that you felt unbounded? that you felt that you were on an adventure and you didn't have to be the responsible parents on a date night out. <laughs> okay? Just where you can, and, and, and maybe stay up till four o'clock in the morning. Do you know when you do this every once in a while, you really feel young. You just do. You feel like you're not being responsible citizen. You feel like you're not accountable. You just let go. It has nothing to do with how much you drink. It just has to do with the fact that there is no curfew, responsibility on you at that moment. So I highly work with people on, you know, the, the, the day of non-responsibility. You make sure that your kiddos and your whole family and your business and everything is taken care of. Second, I say, you know, when's the last time you actually stayed in bed in the morning, not because you had a fever, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's everything that has to do with breaking rules and with playing hooky and with being naughty because all of those things, that playfulness, which children know. I mean, you know, the, the, the kids who play feel great, but the kids who play and are naughty in the, mean, in the middle of it because they entered the place where they were not supposed to go, they feel on top of the world. There is something about breaking rules that make you feel like you are really in touch with freedom and with your free will. And that energizes people. That is erotic. That makes you feel alive and vibrant and vital. So the whole gamut of breaking rules. I look at their lives. I see peace places and I say, you see that thing? I want you, that rule that you put for yourself, I want you to break it. And I go for the breaking of the rules. So that is a major piece of, uh, of the work I, I do with them. Then the second one I often do is I, which is a very sweet one, and, and but, but one that can really reconnect people with the playfulness because for me to get to the passion you have to connect to the playfulness 
take out a separate email address or a separate phone number, whatever. But what I want you to do is to have a way, a channel that you communicate. It could totally be social media, doesn't matter, that only the two of you know, not your kids, not your secretary, nobody knows anything about this. And you're not allowed to talk about Management Inc. You're not allowed to talk about anything that has to do with the shopping and the kids and the, and, and the holidays and nothing. It's just a place for the lovers. You still are lovers and you need a place where that is protected and where you only speak to each other from that place. You can send song, music, poetry, pictures, whatever you want. You're talking to your lover. You're not talking to the mother of your children or your wife or your business partner. That segregating of the erotic becomes very, very important as well. So I like to do that with them. I think anything that breeds novelty, novelty breeds testosterone. Most of the couples who are comfortable tend to do the same old because they enjoy it. And it's really nice. There's nothing wrong with doing the same old and going back to the same places and appreciating that. But it doesn't create any edge if you want passion, you need unknown mystery, transcendence, imagination, curiosity. It's those parts. And that means you need to do something that you haven't done. So I want you to take your partner, you know, you're in charge of the weekend. Nothing, nothing, nothing brings us more joy than somebody who surprises us. Unless we have a history of trauma, then we don't like surprises. But otherwise, take your partner you know, blindfold them or not, pack their suitcase and take them, you know, even if it's around the corner to someone else's place, if you don't have a penny, it doesn't make a difference. And don't tell them anything that's going to happen next. They're in their, they're in your hands, you know, they're in your hands. Everybody remembers as a kid walking with someone that holds your hand and you have to close your eyes and you have to trust that they're not going to bump you into other people. It's one of the favorite games we played. So, Anything having to do with novelty, with surprise, with, with protecting an erotic space, uh, all of those things is where people will reconnect sexually. I want you to make love with your clothes on. Most people, after they are together, first they undress, then they go into the bed, and then they start to do the deeds. You know, many people remember there is that when they think about moments of passion they think about making out actually they think about they think about tearing each other's clothes off as well but a lot of it is actually it's everything the before it's the uncertainty will it happen won't it happen where is this going you know i want you to go and set the room up create an environment and just to Everything that you don't typically do. If typically you first undress, then you go to bed, don't ever take your clothes off. Just play with the, play with the parts of you that you have completely left out. And the reason it became so clear to me is because now that I've written and worked on infidelity for all these years, everybody was talking about reconnecting with the lost parts of themselves. Hmm. And that's really what people and, often are looking for in a relationship, yeah, aren't they? Yep, yep. And so the lost parts of yourself, you know, they are all around your house. Just go there. Don't just go for the sure bet because it works. Because in, in passion, what works is a disaster. So what did you think? What resonated with you? This is just part one of the discussion between Tony, Mary B, and Esther. Check back with us for part two when Tony and Esther delve into more issues surrounding relationships and intimacy, including one of the most complex and perplexing questions, why people cheat. The Tony Robbins Podcast is directed and hosted by Tony Robbins and Mary Buckheit. Carrie Song is our executive producer. Strategy and distribution by Anna Yorg and Tyler Colbertson. Jamie Carvajal and Adriel De La Torre are our digital editors. Copyright Robbins Research International. <laughs>